This is The Legal Impact, a podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute. Learn more about it at law.unh.edu. S-E-L-I. Welcome back to the show. AJ, thanks for having me back. It's good to see you. So you had an interesting program that happened this July, this January that I, I thought would be great to kind of cover at the beginning where you had a bunch of students over at the UFC headquarters over in Las Vegas. What was that about? Yeah, it was incredible. So as you know, our law school has essentially an immersion program where we have courses held at different locations as part of the hybrid but this course was open to all students, uh, residential JD, hybrid JD, and grad students. And it was learning on location. And it basically involved going to the UFC, having almost a dozen speakers from the UFC talk about their different work in terms of legal operations, some of the legal issues that come up, including a lot of intellectual property law issues, where the league, because they sell their fights through uh, pay-per-view, they have to protect those sales. So we heard from different industry people at the UFC about the, that kind of work. And it, w- it was an amazing, really amazing opportunity for the students, for me. I reached out to a couple of UFC people that I know, maybe August, and you know, really not expecting that they would go along with this. And they did. And they were great, great hosts, really just a great learning opportunity. Yeah, amazing facility to go to. It, it's like one of the the most premier athletic association with brand new facilities and such in the country. That's for sure. So the students must have got, had a blast going there. Yeah, we went to the octagon, the ring where the fights take place. We saw the, the whole campus. It, it is a beautiful campus, beautiful facility, state of the art technology, great sort of operations. I mean, even the cafeteria we were sort of so so enamored by the food that was served. Now they have fighters there, so they got to stay fit. Uh, the the food was really incredible, and yeah, it was just, it was just a great opportunity to learn about intellectual property law, also some antitrust law issues. The UFC is the defendant in a big case brought by former fighters about how much revenue should be shared with fighters. So we did a lot of economics as well, antitrust, and the whole it was a four day course that met nine to five, and literally every minute we had something. So. Uh, great, great experience for all. That's awesome. So, yeah, definitely if you're an existing student, check that out next year. Whatever whatever uh, Dean uh, Carpenter manages to to pull together with the faculty, it's always worthwhile. Previously, we've done it at Silicon Valley, so it, it's cool seeing it move around the country a bit. Because there's all sorts of different specialties. No matter what big city you go to, there's, always, there's, a, there's a law specialty that can definitely be uh, touched upon. So let's move over to some of your articles you've written of late over at Sportico.com. Uh, people should check out your articles there for sure. Super interesting work. And let's start off with uh, an update in the Flores case, which we've discussed recently. And I saw you actually tweeted some numbers around the um, uh, NFL's Rooney rule, which is really kind of making this a, a complex situation. Right. So the Rooney rule has been in place for about 20 years. The Rooney rule requires that teams interview minority candidates for different positions. And Brian Flores is, of course, the former Dolphins coach who's recently been hired by the Vikings to be their defensive coordinator, but he was fired as head coach by the Dolphins. 
And he brought a lawsuit arguing that the league and some of the teams conduct sham interviews where the Rooney rule requires that minority candidates be interviewed. And he argues that he has been essentially brought in just to check off a box, that it wasn't a legitimate interview. And he also has other arguments arguing that the league is essentially not welcoming for minority coaches, but particularly black coaches. That's the group that his lawsuit is centered on. And 58% one study has of NFL players are black. Other numbers suggest it's closer to 70%. So this is a league where most of the players are black and yet comparatively very few coaches and general managers and to some extent coordinators are black. And the it, it consistently has come up with the league where how does the league become more representative of the players? The Rooney rule at least does not if you look at the data, it really hasn't led to more black coaches in the sense that there aren't more now than there were before. Now, that doesn't mean it, the rule is not helpful, but it, it may not be sort of the solution to an issue that uh, is, is hard to untangle because every owner hires their own coach. It's not, you know, the league doesn't say, well, the Patriots have to hire so-and-so and Bill Belichick eventually retires. It doesn't work that way. That'll be Robert Kraft's decision. It's a common issue with with rules around this. I mean, anything where there is kind of a central authority that doesn't have direct control in day to day operations of company, where if you don't have an enforcement mechanism or way of making sure through data and analytics that things are being done a certain way, this is inevitable where you're going to have this confusion. I mean, very well, there could be issues where Flores is saying is accurate, but it's so hard to prove. Very hard to prove and very hard to get inside people's minds. Right. And. The teams that he's accused of racism have rebuttals. So he argues that the New York Giants brought him in just to satisfy the Rooney rule, that it wasn't a legitimate interview. The team said, well, we actually had you in twice and we didn't need to bring you in a second time. We already had interviewed a minority candidate. So it was a legitimate interview. So there's sort of a back and forth of what's legitimate, what's not legitimate. And the Dolphins fired him. He argues he was treated differently because he was black and specifically that the owner offered offered him money to lose games intentionally so that they would get a better draft pick. He he essentially implies that, well, he was if he was a different coach, the owner wouldn't do that. That may be true or maybe it isn't true. I mean, we, we, we don't know. I mean, owners owners are fiercely competitive and the Rooney rule also it, it doesn't require a team to hire a minority candidate it requires them to interview. Now, there's an argument that that's still good, that by bringing in a more diverse set of candidates, that you, that it elevates those candidates because they're now in the news that they're being interviewing for certain jobs. But it doesn't appear that it's it's solving the, the original concern, which is a lack of minority coaches. Has the, has the league done anything to kind of clean up the situation when it comes to this rule? Because it doesn't seem like the, there's been too much coming out from the NFL regarding it. Oh, the, the league... We'll, we'll say that they have tried to cultivate coaching young coaches who are black uh, to enter the, the industry. Former players are brought on as coaches and, and that eventually that will lead to more hirings of head coaches who are black. And there's probably logic to that, that that's true. It's just the data doesn't support that it's worked, at least not yet. And it's now 20 years. So as long as each team hires their own coach, it's going to be difficult, most likely, for the league to radically change 
the dynamics. Now, there, there may be draft pick, giving teams draft picks for uh, that. That's been part of the rule now when, when a team loses a coach. Uh, so, but, but again, it doesn't really seem to change the the sort of gravity of the situation. Yeah, and it's a delicate balance because you, you also don't want to be too heavy-handed with it because it's going to be a PR nightmare for the audience of the NFL, which if I'd guess is going to be considerably right-leaning politically and you're going to be possibly dealing with Congress stepping in and saying, what are you doing? You're being unfair with people of the majority of the population. Yeah, the league has to be mindful of the different constituencies it has, whether it's the fans, whether it's sponsors, whether it's Congress, and also the, the fact that this is – this is a franchise or a franchisee relationship. And as long as the franchisee retains certain control, just like a fast food restaurant, the individual owner of that franchise will hire the manager, right? At the local fast food. It's not as if the, the company headquarters are deciding that. So the structure is sort of a business structure that allows autonomy. And the hope is that with that autonomy, there will be good decisions made uh, but, you know, the question is sort of, is that happening? Let's move over to your next article with titled Eagles Lose Workers Comp Case Against Emmanuel Acco, which is kind of an interesting thing people don't necessarily consider as worker comp, workers' compensation around athletes. Athletes are workers. They just work under contracts primarily when it comes to their employment mechanism. But I, I, it's just something you don't tend to think about in the field. Yeah, especially because in, in many of the major leagues, contracts are guaranteed, and that's not true in the NFL. So in the NBA or Major League Baseball, by and large, if a player gets hurt, they're still going to be paid out the remainder of their contract. Now, there are exceptions to that, but that's the gist of it. NFL is very different. In the NFL, typically only the signing bonus is guaranteed unless there's another contractual stipulation. So when a player is cut, including when they're injured, they'll usually get a few weeks of pay and that's it. So, it, and for some, they're not able to go back into the league because of injury, or maybe they're not a star player and they're, you know, just a, a hamstring pull could be the difference between an NFL career and doing some other line of work. So yeah, in the NFL workers comp issue comes up because in part because of the structure of the contracts and also because players get hurt in the NFL, right? It's, it's, a, it's every player, I think their injury rate they'll say is like 100% because every play somebody could get some sort of injury. So uh, it is a little bit unique to the NFL. I mean, other leagues have workers' comp, but it comes up more often in the NFL. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, especially with the NFL where the risk is so extremely high. I mean, the whole basis for how you do each round, each play of the game is you're bashing players against each other and hoping, I mean, as as aggressive as the NHL is, I, I mean, generally speaking, you're going to lose some teeth over the span of your <laughs> career, but you're more likely to be able to play the, the next game. Yeah, and, and absolutely. NHL is, is violent. I mean, there are checks, and as you said, you can lose teeth, you could suffer some other injuries, but not to the same degree on average as in the NFL, where I think it's, I remember a doctor once said, it's like every play is a car crash, right? Because you're just colliding at full speed. And these are big guys, right? These yeah. are these are guys that are really large, heavy, strong, and that are also super fast. So it kind of creates a dynamic. So it isn't surprising that, that there are many injuries and for some players, it, it could be the end of a career. It's, it's tremendous financial risk and liability risk to 
I mean, especially, I mean, you could be playing three games and that's your entire career in the NFL and that's happened before. Yeah, absolutely. And that can be it. It can be a few games and then you could blow out a knee or, or again, it could, it could just be a hamstring pull yeah. and then somebody takes your job, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not always catastrophic of an injury. It can be something that's you'll eventually recover from uh, a swollen ankle. I mean, there are all sort of things that all of us have endured that don't affect our ability to work, but pro pro athlete, especially in the NFL, it really can be the difference. So let's go with the specific case study or here of, of Manuel Ako, what happened in his situation? Yeah, so very basically, back in 2015, he hurt his thumb while practicing, and then he hurt it again, and he was cut and then resigned. He had surgery uh, between when he played for – it was with the Philadelphia Eagles. And after he was cut, he couldn't get another team because it just was a lingering issue. It prevented him, he argued, from continuing to play. Now, the Eagles would later say well, – at least they had a doctor to say, no, it didn't end your career – uh, the Eagles argue that it wasn't the reason why he didn't continue his career, that maybe he just wasn't great. Uh, he was not a star player, and he got replaced. So he brought a workers' comp case against the Eagles. This was this took multiple years, and he just won. The, the court held that he established that the injury that he suffered effectively ended his career. And this was a workplace injury. Workers' comp is, of course, for uh, workers when they're injured on the job. And the, the gist of workers' comp is employers have to buy insurance. And if somebody gets hurt, that employee will get a portion of his or her salary and other benefits for a period of time. It's not 100%, but it's still good. And if they don't get it, they can argue that they're owed workers' comp, essentially. And that's what happened here. So... It is interesting where you don't think of pro athletes in this kind of, this seems like something, a more ordinary kind of life situation. And yet uh, with an NFL player, when you, when your career is brief, this is something that can come up. Do you think him winning this case is going to have any broader change to how the cases like this are handled? Or is this basically a one-off? It's probably a one-off just because every state, every state has a different workers comp law, but I do think, and he's somebody who has gone on to become high profile in broadcasting, it will get noticed. And there may be players that now decide to bring workers' comp cases that wouldn't be for. Now, whether they're they're in a state that would permit recovery, workers' comp laws are sort of all over the board, but I do think it could encourage some to at least try. Let's move over to one more article here. NCAA's guilty until proven innocent name, image, and likeness policy is sure to draw lawsuits. This has been an ongoing theme we've talked about for the last couple of years. NIL is an ongoing theme that you're going to continue here for years to come as legislation goes from state to state and maybe someday at the federal level. But what's going on specifically here? Yeah, so the NCAA, of course, for years wouldn't allow name, image, and likeness, which is a right that we all have. It's called the right of publicity. 2021 because states had adopted their own statutes telling the NCAA it's now illegal that that schools deny it. Uh, the NCAA allowed NIL back in 2021. But what they've discovered is that college athletes are not, I mean, some are being paid NIL, others are being paid money as inducements to go to a particular college. So that's really pay for play rather than name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA has been unable to figure out how to stop it 
So they, now they've adopted a new policy, which is essentially if there is a suspicion, including just from a tweet of a wrongful NIL deal that it's really pay for play, the burden shifts to the accused school or athlete or coach, whoever it may be, to then establish that it's a legitimate deal. So it's really pivoting the burden. And the, my article looks at, well, that may be illegal because that presents an antitrust problem. When the NCAA comes up with a rule, it's the NCAA and all of its members coming together. If this policy essentially frightens uh, businesses and players and, and schools regarding NIL, the argument could be this is interfering with the market. So that creates a potential antitrust case. Yeah, I mean, if if a rule like that creates a whole legal industry specific just to manage this and management professionals, just to make sure athletes don't get get hosed out of basically all their scholarships and being able to attend NCAA or play in NCAA games and play in different teams, I mean, that's that'd be a tremendous uh, problem for athletes and many schools that just can't afford anything like that. I mean, the rich schools, which can afford the PR staff, may be able to do it, but no one else. Right. Schools have limited budgets to deal with accusations of wrongdoing. And it really puts the NCAA back in the position that it began with, which is an antitrust problem, right, where they prevented NIL for years. Ed O'Bannon was brought the case over players appearing in video games without compensation. That was an antitrust case where the NCAA didn't allow compensation. Well, if they have a policy that makes it harder to get NIL compensation, it's not going to take much for one lawsuit to surface, right? I mean, there's thousands of tens of thousands of people affected by this policy potentially. So, yeah, I mean, it's just whatever the NCAA does, it really, I think, creates, uh, you know, legal issues for them. Yeah. I mean, from a strategy perspective, I, I mean, we say this around Facebook and Twitter and such with, with them just doing what they're doing, hoping that, Congress will step in and make a decision for them because they don't feel like making a decision because it just opens up cans of worms they don't want to deal with. I mean, is the NCAA kind of having that strategy? It's like they're just kind of throwing things against the wall saying, oh, maybe maybe this will kind of make a decision happen. They want an antitrust exemption. So they do want Congress to pass a, a, what would be a federal statute that contains an antitrust exemption that essentially reaffirms amateurism and allows the NCAA to police it. I don't see any political pathway for that outcome. I mean, first of all, neither party appears to support it. It isn't as if, you know, it's and like a split Democrat right now. Party. Right. Yeah. Like two, the two parties don't like each other at all. And yet on this, they're, they're not in favor of an antitrust exemption. You have Republicans who are against it. You have Democrats who are against it. And also the parties have very different goals in terms of legislation. Some of the democratic members want, broader reform. So there's revenue sharing, guaranteed health care, whereas the Republicans want something more narrow. Well, Congress is divided, right? So it, it's hard to imagine that they're going to get much traction, at least in this Congress. I mean, would an alternative be just class action or just individual lawsuits and the courts end up having to make a decision? Yep. that That's one possibility. Or the other possibility is, is the NCAA could do nothing. Yeah. It could just let the market play out. I mean, that's what some would say is the right outcome. Just let let the market determine itself. And if people are uncomfortable with it, then they should accept that this is how markets work. I mean, that that's another possibility. I don't think anyone's going to do that, but that's another possibility is just to say, 
they can't police this. It's just not practical to police it without running afoul of the law. Also without continuing the perception of the NCAA as being unfair. So one, and the NCAA now is a new president, Charlie Baker, the former governor of Massachusetts. He's much more entrepreneurial, much more pragmatic than those in the past. So it'll be interesting to see how he handles these issues. Professor Michael McCann, director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, law.unh.edu slash S-E-L-I to learn more about his institute. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Sportico.com to check out the articles we discussed today as well as in the episode description. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To us for a word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.